Welcome everyone to the Manchester Greeny Deal podcast. I'm Adam Williams and here tonight, I'm with my bro, half man, half mixing deck, Andrew Glassford. You okay, mate? I'm good, man. How are you? We, I'm, we, I'm great. You surviving storm. What's this one called? Eunice? Irene. Irene, isn't it? Irene. Oh, is it Eunice? I thought it's Eunice. Irene. It's Eunice. It's Eunice. Well, there you go. <laughs> Whatever she's called, I'm surviving it. And you know what? I've said to you before, when I'm, when I'm cosy inside, I love storms. You know, I love hearing them. They send me to sleep, man. I love it. Even if you get the names wrong. Well, I'm glad you're surviving. <laughs> yeah. And, Andrew, please tell everyone about your running today. So my man, Andrew, oh, here. Right, okay. Okay, who's not a runner, who's not one of those obsessive runners that run in all weathers, he decided today was the day he was going to start running. Over to you, mate. <laughs> All right, I see. So here's something that's going to get cut from the podcast straight away. But I'll, no, for, definitely for, for not. Sake, this is great. View, this is great. For the sake of you. Um, yeah, well, I'm getting married in October. So, you know, I've got to be at least in some modicum of shape at some point in this year. So I thought, well, if I go out for a, a run on possibly the, in the worst conditions of the year, then I've set a base level of when, I, of when I'm happy to go out. And if, there are, you know, most of the time trees won't be falling on me. So I can probably go for a run. So yeah, I went out in uh, in Eunice or Irene or whatever it's called. Um, wasn't hit by any flying wheelie bins or you know um, reportage. Uh, yeah, it was fine. It was just very cold and wet. Um, awesome, mate. Honestly, mate, I love the dedication. <laughs> love it. Well, cheers, man. Okay, so now on the podcast, we've said over and over again that when it comes to the fight against climate breakdown, the reduction of carbon is only one aspect of the struggle, with the preservation and increase of biodiversity being just as important. However, the importance of biodiversity gets maybe 5% of the press that carbon reduction gets. And so once again, here on the podcast, we want to bang the drum for the wonderful and essential work of our nation's botanists, who are the overlooked heroes on the front line of climate breakdown. Tonight's guest is botanist Leif Bursweden. Leif has written two books, Where the Wildflowers Grow and The Orchard Hunter. He also has a PhD in genetics. Leif, a warm welcome to the show, mate. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How are you North? doing? Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, mate. Oh, you're very so, welcome. So Leif, you know, for those that don't know you, you've got to tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you come from and also where your love of plants comes from. So, yes, so my name's Leif. Um, I am a writer, a botanist, and a science communicator. And I basically spend my entire life um, just trying to get people interested in plants and trying to get people outside uh, engaging with nature in, in whatever form they like. But uh, I do have a particular interest in plants. So um, I do tend to go on and on about uh, the wonderful green things in the world. Um, but, yeah, I'm based down in Oxford, and uh, yeah, basically spend my entire time uh, running around the country, finding plants, meeting people to talk about plants, why they love them, um, and sharing as much as I can of that uh, on social media and yes, in writing format as well. In terms of where my interest began, um, so I grew up in Wiltshire down in the south of England and basically have loved wild plants pretty much as long as I can remember. My mum always likes to remind me that when I was three years old, um, I had an imaginary friend called Millie. Um, but <laughs> Millie wasn't an ordinary made-up girl. Millie was a leaf on a bush in the garden. And, <laughs> and I used to go and hang out with Millie all the time. Millie was my best friend. 
And I, <laughs> I don't know what my parents thought, but I used to go out as a three-year-old into the garden and just hang out with this bush. And it was great fun. Um, awesome. But yeah, my, my love for plants has, has stayed with me throughout my whole life. Um, it got going properly maybe around the age of seven uh, when I discovered a bee orchid, um, which is a fantastic thing that tricks bees into trying to mate with it in order to get pollinated. Basically, just tried to identify as much as I could around um, where I grew up in Wiltshire. And I don't, I, people always ask me why plants rather than any other bit of nature. Yeah. Um, which is always a question that I find, I find it difficult to answer because. There isn't really a reason. I like the fact that they don't move um, so that I can <laughs> I can actually sort of get up close and have a look at them. Yeah, I'll move um, very, but, very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to make friends with, you know, they can't escape. Exactly, yeah. They're just forced to sit there while, while you have a good look. So, yeah, yeah, basically that's my my little run-up of, of why uh, how I got interested in plants. Yeah, yeah. So I've mentioned number of times on the show in the past that you know I grew up completely detached from nature I'm a proper city boy and to be honest I, it wasn't until me me 30s that I would even have known what a botanist was and sadly I don't think I'm unique in, in, you know, in this respect especially in North Manchester where I'm from uh, but now I've come to believe truly that botany is so important that everybody really needs to have some sort of fundamental knowledge you know, to, to look after their own gardens, to to educate the children. That's how much I believe in it now. But could you tell us a little bo- bit more about what botany is? You know, some of the fundamentals of botany and why it's so important to the balance of nature. Yeah, it's very true. And you're, com- yeah, you're completely right. There are, there are, it's not, it's not very well known about. Um, the word botany is a very sort of old fashioned word, if you like. Um, and I think there are lots of sort of, connotations that come along with it of like dusty old libraries and old people shuffling around with herbarium sheets and press (laughs) plants and that kind of thing um and that's yeah something i really really want to change so botany itself is literally just the study of plants um and i call myself a botanist i don't actually study plants anymore i just like going out to look at them so i don't actually think that you have to study them in order to be a botanist. But yeah, so bo- the act of botanizing, I, I always describe it as a verb, is literally just going outside, walking along and noticing the wild plants that are growing in your surroundings, whether that's in a nature reserve or like in the cracks in the pavement on the street outside your house. And plants are, it's always so difficult because they are just the most important things. They give us the oxygen that we breathe. They give us um, the clean water that we drink. And they give us all of our food, whether directly or indirectly. And they get so underappreciated. I think people just dismiss them as being boring, as being like part of the background because they don't move. And I feel like if people just gave them a chance and, you know, started sort of um, learning about all the amazing things that they do because they they act just like animals. They you know they have all these yeah. challenges they have to face that are exactly the same as animals. They've got to put food on the table. They've got to reproduce. Um, they've got to make sure they don't get eaten by predators. But they've got to do all that while being rooted to the spot. 
And so they've come up with all these different ways of surviving while being rooted to the spot, um, which I just think is so interesting because, you know, animals, it's fairly obvious when you think about it, they can run away from all these things. Yeah, it just feels more obvious about how an animal gets around in life because I guess they're more similar to what us. We are animals. But all yeah, plants do all these things as well. And so I think it's just a case of opening our minds a little bit. And I try to just show people that plants do all the same things as animals. They deserve exactly as much attention as animals. Um, because, yeah, they are they're the base of the food chain. And without plants, there's not much life on Earth without plants. So, yeah, um, yeah totally. they're pretty important. <laughs> um, so, so you describe yourself there as, as a science communicator. Your latest book that's not out yet, but it's about to come out, is like a tour of the wildlife across the British Isles. So I'd be intrigued to know if you discovered like kind of differences in people's attitudes towards botany and to plants across the country. Was there anywhere where you're like, oh my God, these guys really get it and people don't? Like, because you kind of go over to Ireland as well and areas of Scotland, I believe. So was there any like regional, I guess, cultural differences about people's understanding of, of the earth? That's a very good question. Um, I think, I mean, yes is the answer. So... Before I did this trip, so basically what I did is I went around the country. I spent all of 2021 uh, cycling and sat on trains around, going around the country, uh, tracking down our most well-known wildflowers. And along the way, I met with people who have some kind of connection to their local flora mm. and just chatted to them about why they like going to look for plants, essentially. Yeah, wherever I went, I talked to uh, people who I, you know, botanists who I met specifically with, but also anyone I came across, whether that was cycling on the road and there are people walking or uh, people in cafes and pubs and that kind of thing. And before I did this trip, I was very much of the opinion that no one really knows anything about plants anymore. No one really cares apart from the people in like the nature bubble on social media. <laughs> but I mean, that, that is the case in many places, but I did find that there are still lots of people out there who know lots about plants and it was really, really encouraging to hear. So for example, I, I did a big bike ride um, along the South Downs way uh, in Hampshire and Sussex and pretty much everyone I talked to, uh, had something to say about uh, their local bluebell wood because it was back in back in May when all the bluebells were out. Yeah. And, you know, even people who I had initially sort of judged as they're probably not going to have much to say had all these amazing stories to tell. So that was really encouraging. And then um, there were also, I went up to Shetland. Um, I wanted to go sort of as far out to so as far flung a corner of the country as possible. And what was really interesting about Shetland was that it kind of felt like going back in time. Right. Um, it was this weird kind of, yeah, it felt like, it, I don't know, 50, 100 years ago where everyone had, you know, they knew recipes that had wild plants in them. They knew the names of the plants growing on the street where they wow. lived. Um, they had stories to tell about like folklore and stuff. Yeah. And I was just amazed. I really made me think. This is this must have been. This is sort of must have been what it was like a hundred years ago. Yeah. And we have lost. Well, I think I think we've lost so much of that information. Mm. I guess because we're not living in the places where the plants grow 
as much, or at least in places where they aren't as dominant in the landscape. A, a detachment from nature, then, is you think, what's the kind of cause of that, then? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously most people nowadays live in cities, and while there is still nature in cities, it's not as dominant in your surroundings. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very easy. I spent four years living in London prior to moving out to Oxford, and it's very easy to just kind of think... I'm in a city, there's no nature here. I'm going to do all the city things and then I'm going to go out to the countryside to see nature. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for the first couple of years while I was living here, that was very much my attitude. Um, And then I started thinking, well, this is really hard. I need, you know, I've spent my entire life looking for nature, looking for plants, and I need that in my day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah. So I started then actively searching for it in cities and it is there there's lots there's lots to see and my next projects are all city-based which is very exciting but yeah we've had a a, a koisha on the on the show city girl in nature um, earlier earlier this year brilliant yeah and her whole thing was about you know like understanding the environment around you and putting yourself back in nature even though it may feel you know um abstract and man-made so yeah i think i think it's really important yeah yeah no she's brilliant at it um yeah a big role model yeah, no, she she was a great guest, yeah. Um, do you know what, though, Leif? I think it might even be a bit deeper than this, you know, because um, I have a very similar background to, to Quisia. When, we, when she was on the show, um, there was a lot that she said that I recognised. But the difference was that where Quisia comes from in South London, there's no green, there's no greenery anywhere, yeah? Um, and so you can make this, you can make an assumption that that's why people are not connected to nature. However, where I'm from... Yeah, there's tons and tons of greenery. In where I live now, I'm a stone's from away from throw away from parks, woods, you know, sort of ancient woods. It's a bit of a you know, and yet what it is, I think it's the way that you brought up because f- greenery for me was where can I play football? Yeah, it was okay. I might climb a tree or make a bit of a den, but. I wouldn't know the name of any any plants. I wouldn't know what any of it did. And it's almost a, a psychological thing. So, you know, I, I don't even think it's as easy as, oh, just give people more green spaces and they will naturally connect. I genuinely think that it has to be sort of taught that, you know, you've, you've got to be, you've got to connect. You've got to have inspirations or people that can, that can show you how, to connect with nature, not just that nature's there, if you know what I mean. Um, and I was watching one of your videos, actually, because it, it kind of, I think what you, one of the things that you said was quite profound. You said what you like to do is you like to sit in wild flower sort of patches, yeah, and get on the level of, of sort of the wild grass and the wild flowers to see the perspective of the plants, yeah. And I thought that was really profound because, we're kind of conditioned and brought up in our society um, that things are a means, not not an end in themselves, but a means to an end or what can something do for me? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I am the centre of, of my own universe. But, you know, taking that perspective of, of nature, I think is, is a really sort of important and profound way of looking at it. So what I want to ask really is when you when you do these things, what is what is the sense you get? What is it you see that others don't what, what, you know, what what connections are you getting? Everything you've just said is just so on the money. 
Um, I completely agree with you. And yeah, I think it's a very good way of sort of summing up what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to share the ways that I engage with nature and with plants to try and sort of give people a way into doing the, doing it themselves. Um, so when I, yeah, when I'm down on the ground looking at the plants, I love getting down to plant level because... A, you know, it's all very nice wandering around um, and looking at plants from head height. But to actually properly appreciate them, you have to get up close and personal. Mm. What I love to do, so take a wildflower meadow, for example, lying down in one of those, you suddenly get this like insect's eye view. And what I love to do is I love to imagine that, you know, the buttercups and things are you know, to a fly or to a bee or something, they're like the size of trampolines. And so I like <laughs> lying down in the meadow and imagining what it would be like to be walking around in a world where you've got these like buttercup trampolines or like, I don't know, oxide daisies, which are these big, uh, big daisies. Um, when you actually look closely at the yellow bits in the middle, they form these amazing patterns. And there are loads and loads of flowers packed in there. And again, they would just be these enormous, great big things. And of course, they're all on huge stalks. Yeah. And it becomes this 3D world um, that you're sort of exploring. I guess it's kind of like when you get those shots in, I don't know, something like Jurassic Park, where they're like going through the jungle or something. <laughs> and you've got yeah, all yeah, these yeah. amazing things that... You kind of recognize, but actually when you see them that close, they just it sort of opens your eyes again and you can really, I don't know, just start to appreciate what life is like for a bee or something flying around. And so that's something which I love to do. And it's, you know, it might sound like a strange thing to do, but it's, I find it very relaxing, but also just really exciting just to imagine yeah. what that, what that world is like for them. Because it, it's like you're getting like a drone shot, but you're just at ground level. And you're, exactly, you know, yeah. Like you say, experiencing it, you know, in the space, like a dragonfly or someone would experience it. Yeah. Would like, To kind of pull on that thread a little bit more then, would you say that when you're kind of out, out in, in the woods and, you know, kind of do, doing your research and doing your work, would you say it's kind of like an act of empathy to a certain degree that you're trying to kind of understand the environment on a level where, you see the connections between yourself and it and like how the, that is reciprocal. Absolutely. Plants are just as alive and devious and determined and resourceful as humans are. And when it comes to us developing interests mm. um, and ultimately then making decisions about conservation, um, empathy plays like the biggest role, essentially, you know, if you if you you know most people will get like a tug on the heartstrings if they see a panda rolling around with a stick of bamboo, you know one of the only pandas left in the world, but no one is really going to get that same um, sort of emotional impact of seeing the last population of a plant left in the country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, I think help trying to help people develop emotional connections and those sort of bonds of empathy with plants is so important. Um, and I don't, you know, obviously it's, it is harder than with animals because they are not as similar to us than, yeah. than animals are. So, you know, just simple things like they don't have eyes. Um, so you can't yes. kind of stare into their soul like you, you, you could with a, with a panda or something, but 
yeah, it, it is possible, and it's not as difficult as it sounds. But, but before we move on, I, I wonder if you could give an exa- of us, us an example of a devious plant, as you just said. <laughs> well, I mean, there are so many. Um, <laughs> well, I could, tell, I could tell you about I could tell you about carnivorous plants. Yeah, here's with some carnivorous uh, plant facts. So I had this amazing, amazing experience earlier this year in July. I went to Norfolk to explore the, the broads yeah. um, and to look at some aquatic plants. And one of these plants um, is called greater bladderwort. And it does this incredible thing where it's basically, it's like a botanical jellyfish. So it's not rooted in the ground. It just floats in the water and it gets blown around by the wind. And it's, um, yeah, it's carnivorous. So it literally eats invertebrates that are in the water. Um, And in it's like, so it has this kind of uh, 15 centimeter tall red stem that sticks out of the water with a yellow flower on the top and that's kind of all you can see above the water yeah but then beneath it it's got these sort of feathery leaves which just like hang in the water and they've got uh, little traps called bladder traps just like threaded through all these leaves and they look yeah. like little air bubbles so these um insects and invertebrates in the water um kind of like oh let's go hang out in these leaves there are a few air bubbles in here um but these these traps which, I don't know, they're very small. They're sort of the size of a pea. Yeah. Maybe even slightly smaller than a pea. Um, and they have... They're basically like a little vacuum. So they've got a little, like, lid. It's like a, a, a pot with a lid on. And they pump out uh, the water to create this, like, mini vacuum inside the pot. Wow. When a little, like, invertebrate or insect um, gets too close, they, like, tickle a little hair. And that tells the, the bladderwort that they're there. It opens the trap and that vacuum sucks in the insect, the invertebrate um, and the water into the trap and it shuts again. And it's the fastest movement in the plant kingdom. Wow. It's, I think it's like five to ten uh, milliseconds fast. So like a fraction of a second all over in a flash. And awesome. they then have like bacteria, just like we do in our guts. They yeah, have yeah. bacteria lining the walls of those traps, which then digest the little insect that they've caught, they absorb the nutrients and then they pump out the water to open it again. So it's this incredible thing that just kind of, yeah, it's so devious and it's completely like not what you'd expect a plant to do. Um, But yeah, I I got to see one of these and I actually got to hold one as well, which is incredibly special. It's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Just standing there with this wet, dripping plant uh-huh. in my hands. <laughs> this this killer, this serial yeah. va- vacuum-based murderer. Wow, <laughs> yeah. amazing, amazing. <laughs> hunter. <laughs> and you know what, mate? It's amazing to see the passion. I mean, this is obviously audio, but if people could see just the look on your face to describe <laughs> this, it's, you know, it is amazing, though. And, and even though that's probably a hard act to follow because that sounds absolutely incredible, I am thinking, Leif, that, you know, for people to be... To, to get an interest in, in botany, okay, listen, people work nine to five, okay. I suppose the, the best connection you've got is like maybe the garden, a small garden or a front garden or, you know, that, that sort of thing. So for people that are interested in, in, in botany, but don't have a lot of time to go and sit in, you know, a patch of wildflowers for the afternoon or, you know, um, go chasing devious plants around the country. Um, is there anything, is there any amazing plant that's an everyday plant that people would probably have, you know, in their front or back garden um, that, that they just pass by? They may even, God forbid, spray some 
bloody glyphosate on it. Yeah, but it's actually something amazing. Have you got have you got something that we can look out for in our own gardens, mate? The thing which springs to mind immediately, which grows all over the country, is something which likes growing in pavement cracks and in like the cracks in the walls. And it's called ivy-leaved toad flax. And it's this brilliant thing. It's got these like small um, yellow and purple flowers, which look bizarre. They look kind of like a little alien. Mm. And the leaves are again very small, but they're sort of ivy shaped. So they've got these sort of like little prongs. But what it does is, so yeah, it lives in the cracks in the walls. And when it when it flowers, it grows its flower uh, stalk out of the wall, produces a flower, and it sort of the flower leans towards the light and away from the wall to kind of basically stick its neck out and be yeah. like, yeah. "Look, insects, here I am, come visit." <laughs> um, and then as soon as so a fly comes along, pollinates the flower. Once it's been pollinated, it then moves away from the light. So now it's moving back towards the wall. And it's looking for those little dark cracks and crevices where it can like put its seed. Um, and so they, it shoves it into like the crack above it. And the seed then germinates, puts out another flower. So over the years, the, the plants actually move up the wall. And so if you find this plant, um, you, if you go back like a couple of years later, you'll find it's sort of moved. Started, well, it hasn't moved, but its offspring are moving up the wall. Um, so that's one of my favourite urban wildflowers, and it's really common. It's it'll you know you'll find it pretty much everywhere in cities, uh, but walls particularly. You can find it in the pavement occasionally, uh, but yeah, walls that haven't been weeded are the best ones for those. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and just you know what I did mention glyphosate uh, just briefly. I mean, we've championed you know alternatives. You know, I've done stuff personally. Um, in Rochdale, where I live at the moment. Um, what's your message for people that would go and pick up a bottle of Roundup um, and then just give a casual spray on their gardens, you know, but keep it clean? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, yeah, glyphosate is like my, <laughs> my nemesis. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Well, I, what I say to those people is um, just try not doing it just briefly and seeing what happens. Um, you know, if you decide, ultimately, I'd love it if you stopped using glyphosate. But if you do, if you try it and you don't like it and you decide to go back to using it, you know, I've done all I can do. Um, but yeah, just try it for like a year and see what comes up. And because there are so many things growing in like garden lawns and like I said, in the walls and the pavements, um, which are really, really special. And they're so important, particularly in urban environments where there isn't as much greenery around. They are so important for supporting insect populations, invertebrates in the soil. um, And those things obviously then support birds and other things. And so they're literally like the foundation of our ecosystems, which as you're very aware, are just in an absolute state at the moment. So the little actions that we can all take, like stopping putting glyphosate uh, on plants, are really important. And of course, even if you decide, the very, very least, I I try and get people to sort of hand weed rather than use glyphosate, um, because at least then you're not adding these incredibly damaging chemicals uh, to the environment. Yeah. Um, I do appreciate 
in certain scenarios that is a need to keep places tidy um so you know it's very important that people can walk down the pavement and not trip over that wheelchairs and things can get down down pavements and things so i do see the need for weeding in certain scenarios um where they where they do take over but yeah i just try and encourage people to do it manually rather than um applying applying chemicals yeah yeah you know what mate you said that really calm and really clear um <laughs> but you know the message is stop fucking using yeah. glyphosate <laughs> yes. uh, i'll you, say it for you mate yeah <laughs> um yeah you were alluding to it to it there life about uh the kind of current state of biodiversity and like plant life in the british isles you've done a lot of research around orchids specifically and i'm wondering i guess my, my first question is someone who knows nothing about plants a, why orchids? Are they like a kind of a good barometer of the health of a, like an area? Um, well, yes, is the answer to your question. They basically, if you have orchids in your, you know, in your lawn or in your meadow and your woodland, whatever it might be, then that is a really good sign that you've got a healthy ecosystem. Uh, orchids are very fussy plants. I'm sure if anyone has them at home, you'll know just how difficult they are to look after. Uh, the wild ones are exactly the same. I always describe them as the botanical equivalent of stroppy teenagers because as soon as something isn't quite right in their environment, they're off and you won't hear from them for ages. So yeah, if you have orchids growing in a habitat, then it is, um, yeah, healthier rather than unhealthy. And and is there quite a lot of different species of orchid in the UK? Like, should we be having a lot more of them than we currently do? Because I don't think I've ever seen orchids in the wild anywhere. Yeah, so we actually have uh, between 50 and 60 species growing wild in Britain and Ireland, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And I'm constantly met with people um, who yeah, are amazed to find that we have even one wild orchid. And I remember discovering this for the first time and being amazed that because I've always, always associated them with the rainforest. But yeah, it is extraordinary. They are incredible plants. They're so charismatic. They're so uh, different. And a lot of them are very rare, but a lot of them are very common as well. So uh, things like bee orchids and uh, common spotted orchids can be found pretty much anywhere. Right. If you, for example, uh, stop mowing your lawn for a year, there may well be orchids in the lawn, which would then come up and flower. So yeah, they can they can be found everywhere, even in cities. So yeah, it's just a case of allowing, you know, nature to kind of do what it does best as opposed to cutting stuff back constantly and, and you'll kind of see the beauty that is around us already that we're suppressing for the sake yeah. of tidiness sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And there are so many, you know, things like bee orchids are unbelievably cool plants and they're so interesting and they could easily just be in your lawn. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd apply, I always apply the same advice as I did to glyphosate with mowing lawns. Just don't cut it for like one summer and just see what happens. Um, and if nothing happens and you want to go back to cutting it, fine. I'm not going to have a go at you or anything, yeah. but yeah, just give it a go and see, and see what comes up because there are some very cool things out there. Hey there, apologies for interrupting this great interview with Leaf. Um, has there been anyone more aptly named? For the job they do, I I don't think so. This is just a little heads up that if you're enjoying this show, 
and you're enjoying you know all the stuff we make at GND Media, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash GND Media UK. And for as little as one pound a month, you can help support the show. What what's that? That's the cost of maybe an expensive bag of crisps or a uh, a very bad pastry. I'm not you know. And if you want to give more than one pound, that's great. You could give a uh, a thousand pounds a month if you like. With that amount of money, we'll we'll send ads on a rowboat to the Amazon to check out you know what's going on there. Whatever you want to donate, we will put to good use in making high quality eco journalism. So how does that sound? Head to patreon.com forward slash GND Media UK. Enjoy the rest of the interview. So, um, Leif, I have two young boys under the age of 10. And uh, about 12 months ago, maybe 18 months ago, we actually had Joshua Stiles on the show, you might know, who's, who's another yeah, yeah, amazing Josh botanist. Yeah, yeah he's, yeah, he's mm-hmm. fantastic. And um, because he was on the show and I was doing a bit of research, I was sort of talking about botany in the household and whatnot. Um, and then we did the show, and about two weeks later, I received an email from one of my kids' teachers, and they basically said that the lesson was, you know, what did you want to be when you were older sort of thing, yeah, and my eldest son, he wrote that he wanted to be a botanist. No yeah, way! And, stu- and study plants. <laughs> oh, that's the um, best thing ever. It, it is the best thing ever, but it, it was kind of, a, kind of bittersweet because she was emailing me, to tell me that she'd never heard that before. And so what, you know, it was, it was kind of like, wow, it's amazing that somebody in my class. And so a part of me is like, oh, brilliant. You know, my boy was the first, but then I'm thinking, do you know what? He's eight years old. Yeah. No one's heard of what a botanist is, you know, and it's so out there in a class that the teacher's having to email the parent to say, wow, this is amazing. But do you know what? It shouldn't be like that, should it, Leif? So what, what have we got to do here? Because, you know, Parents shouldn't be getting emails about my kid mentioning a botanist. It should be just normal. So, you know, you do your training and stuff. Do, do, you, do you have connections with schools? Do you, do you have input on how to teach children? How are we going to change this culture so that, that, that the study of plants is just something normal? Oh, uh, that's the dream. It's literally <laughs> the dream. <laughs> I mean... Um... It's yes, the dream, I do. But it's I, also so essential, isn't it? That it has to yes, happen. Yes, and I am so determined that it will happen within my lifetime. I just, I'm not going to take no for an answer. <laughs> it will happen. Um, I think, I think it's a combination of things. I think, yeah. So I do, I do go into schools, but yeah, what I do with them is I go in and I, I t- talk to them about three plants that grow here in this country, and choose some of the you know weird wacky ones that do amazing things and are amazingly adapted to their environments and then i get them to like design their own plants and you know decide what kind of place they grow in and how they're going to deal with living in that place and they always without fail the kids love it they just love the idea of because it's kind of like coming up with their own pokemon (laughs) um it's just a plant and they come up with the most amazing things and often the adaptations that they've chosen um are real life things that plants plants have done so it's then really nice to be able to say um you know this is really cool and actually this exists uh this particular thing exists somewhere out in the wild um so i think that's a really good way of doing it um obviously there needs to be more more about plants in the school curriculum, um, yeah. which is not an easy thing to to change. 
I think the problem probably needs to be addressed um, with the the people training the teacher trainers, mm-hmm. um, so that you know every, all say biology teachers have at least like an awareness of plants, um, not rather than an ignorance. So I think that would really help. And then once you know, once you get into secondary school and things, and um, you know, school children are starting to get onto social media, then having people to look up to, just role models, is so important. And what's really great now with social media is that those people now exist. There are yeah. now people who you can um, go and follow on these on these um, social media sites, which obviously is so negative in so many ways, but there is a really um, important role for social media, I think, in getting young people interested in not just plants, but nature more generally as well. Um, But, you know, when I was a kid, didn't have access to social media and it was just really difficult to find anyone who shared my interest in plants. Um, And so I think, yeah, that has a big role to play as well. Um, Just having access to people who share an interest. Yeah, definitely. I've got a good friend of mine, Rachel, um, and she she's doing a PhD in sort of soil. And what she does is, she, as part of a PhD, she goes to schools. What they, what she does is she gets them to take soil samples mm. from parts of their school gardens and stuff. And she has a sort of a, an agreement with Salford University. You have some sort of technology where you can do soil sample soil sampling. And it's kind of like a positive negative because what she's showing is that actually the soil that you bring to the to this sampler shows just how depleted the soil is. And then she's got a way in then to talk about how how why it's depleted, you know, and bring up things like glyphosate and that. And I thought it was a really sort of good way of of bringing a lot of things involved, you know, science and you know a trip because obviously kids going to Salford that's a big deal, so it's something they'll remember. And I just thought it was such a fantastic um, example of, of like a holistic way of showing something really important. Have you ever heard of that before? I actually think that is the best way. It's always the best way is to get um, kids out into nature, wherever that is, and just interacting with it. Because I am, I completely believe that every single child is born with an innate interest in, you know, the natural world you give a child a young child like a worm or a dandelion clock or something and they're just like fascinated it's amazing yeah and and obviously we lose that so quickly uh, as children and so yeah getting them outside you know playing with the soil showing them these things in real life is just the best way hands down the best way yeah and that's where you know obviously some schools have amazing outdoor places Others, you know, taking kids for trips is always fun. <laughs> um, you know, I used to love those adventures going off like on a coach somewhere and you get to explore these new places. Um, but whatever it is, yeah, just getting them outside and seeing these things and, you know, you know, getting them completely involved, not just sort of sitting them down and showing them, but actually letting them explore and, you know, pick up the worm from the soil and pick the leaves from the trees, that kind of thing. I want, I want to kind of take um, a, a step back previous to what we were talking about with the orchids again and kind of look at a bit of your some of your PhD work, which is based around uh, species integrity and gene flow, which yes. I don't know what these things are, but they, they sound uh, thoroughly interesting. And you, also, <laughs> you kind of go on to talk about hybridization, 
which I'm yes. guessing is when you're splicing two different species of orchid together to make something new. Where do you see like kind of technology meeting, you know, like botany and what would you like, what would be like good, I guess, like strategy to help deal with, you know, Britain's like depleting meadows? Well, I mean, so what I was doing with the PhD was basically as you, as you described, it was looking at when two different species come together um, produce offspring and then looking to see whether that offspring, which is generally like 50, 50 between the two parents. Yeah. So it kind of looks half like one, half like the other. Um, and yeah, then seeing whether that's, that's fertile and can produce further offspring, yeah. whether it can't, why that is. Um, and yeah, I was doing a lot of genetics, uh, which is the thing which has kind of left my head <laughs> now, that I've, now that I've finished. But yeah, you're right. There is, there is such an important role for all this amazing technology we have. I mean, there are lots of things we can do um, to restore wildflower meadows, for example. So any, any sort of, you know, we've got so many farmed pastures where yeah. you've got like, I don't know, it's been sprayed for years and um, planted with crops or it's been used uh, for grazing throughout the year. Uh, for cattle or sheep or whatever it might be these places you know if they're if they're suddenly sort of abandoned um it's very very easy to or it doesn't take very long to then turn that into a, a place which is thriving with nature yeah um there are so many ways to go about it um one way is to basically um start cutting it in like a traditional hay meadow uh, management setting. So, um, and you can apply this to your garden lawns as well. So what you basically do is you let it grow through the spring and summer. And then when everything is finished flowering at the end of summer, so kind of mid August to end of September, somewhere in that window, you then cut the lot and you remove all of the grass or whatever's growing, um, from it and take it away because what that does is that removes loads of nutrients from the system you then keep it short over the winter uh, and then let it grow again from say march onwards but if you keep doing that sort of letting it grow over the summer cutting and removing everything then the soil starts uh, becoming poorer because you're taking all these nutrients out of it right and it's kind of counterintuitive but poor soils breeds biodiversity um right, because okay. it kind of levels the playing field um so if you're taking out all of these nutrients then you're basically you yeah you're taking out any advantage that any plant has and so they can all sort of compete um as equals yeah because there are a few species which are very very good at taking nutrients out of the soil and so if there are a lot of nutrients in the ground um then they just sort of gobble them all up they grow really, really big, really quickly, and they just outcompete everything else. Mm. And so, if you don't remove um, the grass and everything that's grown at the end of the summer, then you're just letting those nutrients go back into the soil, and you're just sort of continuing on and on. Right. So, yeah, just applying that very simple leave to grow during the summer, cut at the end and through the winter, and then. Yeah, just keep doing that over and over again. And then all the wildlife comes back. And of course, as soon as you've got all the plants back, then just everything else returns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't, you know, doesn't take that long uh, for that to happen. 
it's relatively uh, labour unintensive, <laughs> relatively. Yeah. <laughs> so is that is that a similar reason then? And, and excuse my na- naivety, but is that a similar reason why like the rainforests are so diverse as well? Because the soils are generally quite poor, so it kind of levels the playing field across for various you know species to kind of grow and adapt. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, if we suddenly just suddenly started spraying the rainforest with fertilizer, then the biodiversity would drop dramatically. Right. Um, yeah, and it is counterintuitive. And even now, you know, I kn- I've known this for, for years now, but even now, in my head, it doesn't really make sense that adding food yeah. is not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, it feels like it should be the other way around. And Leif, is, is that simply because when you add that food, it will it will prioritize a specific species that will then take over the area. That's what we're saying, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so there, yeah, there are a few species which are just very good at taking nutrients yeah. out of the soil, and yeah. there are lots of species which aren't as good, and so they just get outcompeted. Because, um, for example, the things which are really good at taking the nutrients will grow very quickly. They might even then, you know, block out the light and things. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they just dominate the environment and the others don't really stand a chance. Yeah. So at the moment, Leif, is obviously David Attenborough's The Green Planet. Mm. Now, I know that's all about plants and stuff. And uh, yeah. it, it, I've seen the first one and it is absolutely fantastic. But but what I find it... Oh, do you, do you like it? Oh, I love it yeah, so yeah, much. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something fantastic. and like, no, he's got it all wrong. But no, no I'm, no, glad, no, I'm, glad, I'm glad that the old boy still got it in him. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that, that always worries me though, life, and I find this with, with documentaries, as good as they are, they're like a focal point for a, for a minute moment in time. And when there's nothing behind it, all that energy and all that focus, it dissipates really, really quickly. Now, there's loads of documentaries like that. Sea Spiracy was one. I, I met people who were telling me they're never going to eat fish again. They eat fish. They eat fish now because that was six months ago. Yeah, I remember one called The Game Changers. I'm vegan and I remember everyone saying, oh, if you become vegan, you become like dead muscly and all that. I'm going to become vegan. They're all eating meat again. You know, and I think it's, it's this, um, as good as these programs are, we cannot bank on them as changing anything really in, in the medium to long term. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I think the one small exception would be, um, was it Blue Planet, where they did loads of plastic stuff? And I think that had a really big impact on how we think about plastics, which I still see today. But I completely agree with you. Um, they're all quite sort of flash in the pan mm. everyone gets very excited yeah. and then gets on with everyday life after yeah. it's finished I, I, and I agree. the thing is i mean they've done their job what they've created is is what they could create yeah and i think what they've done is fantastic but what we need is we need something behind it don't we so i know you do some work with um, the species recovery trust and it, and it's that sort of like connecting things into it so tell us about your work in that um, and, you know, anybody that's now watching The Green Planet, you know, th- that would be maybe the next stage if, if it's really taken an in- you've taken an interest in it. So, yeah, what, what, what do you do for the Species Recovery Trust? So I'm like a um, I, I basically lead some courses for them. Um, so once or twice a year, I will take a group of people out into 
like a nature reserve basically and teach them how to identify plants um but what the species recovery trust do is so much more than that um they're sort of a lot of their funding comes from teaching courses and they do you know they do plant courses they do all sorts of different things um across around england and wales i think it is and yeah but their main focus is trying to save 50 species which were on the brink of extinction um from going extinct before the year 2050 and so they do all this amazing work with these really unusual rare things and again, not just plants. Um, it's about a 50-50 split between the animals and the mm. plants. And yeah, they're basically just picking up all these things which kind of have been forgotten by lots of other um, conservation agencies and just making sure they don't go extinct and they they, they hang on. Um, and they're trying to get them back to a stage where they can kind of not let them go and be by themselves, but at least they're not so worried about them uh, disappearing. My work with them is relatively limited. I do a lot of promotion for them because I think they're amazing. <laughs> um, and they're based uh, where I grew up as well. Um, and it, it is run by a good friend of mine. So, yeah, I know he's his heart is in the right place. And I, yeah, because I know that. I know everything he does uh, for <laughs> nature is just brilliant. So I'm very keen to to support them and... Uh, yeah, promote everything they're doing. Yeah, because that's the key into you know, like I say, the documentaries, they, they give people a focal point, they put a yeah. spotlight on something, but if there's nothing around it, you know, people soon lose interest. So yeah, you know, anybody that's enjoying Green Planet right now, go and check out the Species Recovery Trust, yeah. definitely. I think it's also, you know, different people will want to do different things. So once you, you know, if you've seen Green Planet and you've, got really excited about plants for the first time and you might want to go and help with conservation work in which case the species recovery trust are brilliant uh you might want to go and start learning all the plants in which case uh, the botanical society of britain and ireland are brilliant for uh, supporting beginner botanists they're on their website for example there's loads of stuff about how to get started um, everything from like if you want to get a book on how to identify plants, they've got loads of recommendations. Cool. Um, even into like finding botanists in your local area who who you can go out and look for plants with. The way I view the the botanical world is the same way as I view the animal world. So the way I write about plants is the same. It's it's like I I talk about them as if they're animals. Mm. And just in the same way, because I think we need to change the way we talk about plants in order to bring them up to the same level as animals in terms of our interest with them. Um, and I think Green Planet is also excellent at doing that. That last these last five episodes, we finally have the technology that sounds stupid, but they they bring it brings plants to life. Yeah, because you can we can finally see. Uh, that plants are just as alive as animals are and they're doing all the same things. They're exploring their environment and they're fighting with each other and everything. They're just doing it at a different time scale to us. But now that we can see that, that's so exciting. And, you know, even like, you know, David's narration of the whole thing, it's all really exciting and he's he's talking about them in the same way that he does animals. And I think that's so important. And so, yeah, um, my book is in that that kind of vibe. So if you're interest in reading that if you've enjoyed green planet 
um, from like a storytelling point of view mm. than I've written about it in that similar kind of way. And so there are all these different ways in which you might decide to pursue your interest uh, that's come out of something like Green Planet. Yeah, well, Leif, mate, I'm definitely going to get your books, especially for my boys, uh, 100%. Oh, I'm looking forward <laughs> to read them as well. You're doing amazing work, mate. You know, like I said, we're going to keep pushing you know, the importance of biodiversity and we're going to get botanists on. So if you've got anyone, you know, later on, you want to let us know about who who might be good for a conversation, please let us know because it's so important. It's been fantastic, mate. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. That's really kind. Thank you so much for having me. This is the part of the show that is dedicated to the fighters, the healers and the conservers of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout out. Leif, who have you got for us this week, mate? So I would like to uh, mention Sarah Watts, who is a botanist in Scotland, who does loads and loads of work on Scotland's mountains and looking at the montane flora. Um, She does a million different things from looking after some of our rarest uh, mountain plants which grow up at the top of the mountains um, where it's basically very cold and they live under the snow for much of the year um, and she goes up there in ridiculously cold temperatures at you know stupid times of year um, and she's sat there like counting plants and like monitoring them all making sure they're all okay in like the worst conditions um, and at the same time she's doing a PhD on uh, on montane willows and kind of like looking to restore um, some forests and some some woodlands to our very, very, very overgrazed uh, mountains up in Scotland. It'll be Sarah Watts. Yeah, awesome. And Sarah, if you're listening, if you can spare us an hour, we'd love to have you on the show. If you can get the Wi-Fi from the mountain. I'm sure she would. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Andrew, who have you got for us this week, mate? I've got two shout-outs this week, and I think they're really important because, you know, we spend... So much time talking about environmentalism, but also there's a, a huge, you know, like justice and worker rights element to the Green New Deal that we don't talk about a lot. Uh, so the first one yeah. is for all the all the workers at PO who've just been sacked this last week. Eight hundred members of staff basically got sacked over Zoom, which is disgusting and basically Outrageous, yeah. yeah, yeah. And basically what PO are doing is bringing in a third-party firm and they're hiring people on as agency workers on lower rates and in worse conditions, which is horrific. It's totally, you know, extractive, abusive forms of capitalism. P&O were given loads of money to to be supported during COVID because obviously no one was going anywhere. Now they're just throwing people out when we're starting to travel again, which is horrific. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So major solidarity to the people into the RMT and I believe in Nautilus is the specific seafarers uh, union. Um, there'll be some links in the description if you can d- donate to them as well, because uh, they need all the help they can get, and hopefully this yeah. is something you know, the labour movement can rally around. And, yeah, and it's also as well exploitative for the agency staff people oh, totally. to as well. Totally, yeah, you know, yeah. So solidarity to everybody involved, yep. Yeah. And my, my second one in a similar vein is for the strikers at Chep Pallets in Trafford. They've been on strike now for just over three months, which is you know incredible, um, incredible on, on their days, on their yeah. part. Uh, they're striking on wages and conditions. Obviously, you know they they work in the pallet industry, a major part of the supply chain. And as as you can imagine, companies like Cheps have been squeezing their workers because of the issues they've been having with global supply chains. 
that's not on when companies like this are making record profits as well at the same time. It's a Unite Union, so um, there's a link in the description to support some of those guys who are on the picket line. You know, I've been hearing some horrible stories about what's been going on and some of the states, some of our uh, comrades are in. You know, people are going homeless, can't afford food right now because they've been on strike for so long. Uh, it's terrible. So, you know, Cheps, get back to the negotiating table and let's sort this out. And if you can donate to them and help them uh, carry on this fight, that would be, you know, some real solidarity. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Uh, my shout out goes goes to Lewis, who is a twenty year old, tw- sorry, twenty one year old climate activist who locked himself to the goalpost at Goodison Park during the Everton and Newcastle game recently. <laughs> Lewis Lewis is part of a group, Just Stop Oil, and when he was asked why he did the action, and I've got to say fair play to Sky Sports as well because they actually printed his statement, which some yeah. newspapers didn't. So fair play to them. I'm actually going to read it out because I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, it's 2022 and it's time to look up, time to step up and not stand by. It's time to act like it's an emergency. Report after report is telling me that my future is going to be dire and my government is telling me not to worry and pay into a pension. But we have a choice. We can choose to highlight that our climate is breaking down. We can choose to resist this government that is betraying us and we can choose to step up and not stand by. He's getting a lot of stick from football fans. Football fans are not necessarily the most climate conscious group, okay? But as someone who's done direct action, at 21 years old, to do this on a live football game, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm telling you now, the kahunas on this kid <laughs> must be massive, mm. yeah? So massive respect just for his bravery. But every single word that Lewis said is correct. Yes. Yeah? And I've said this, you know, in the future, we're going to look back at this time and, and look at, actions like Lewis and look at actions like, like stopping cars in the middle of the road, they're going to seem quaint yes, for yeah, the actions yeah. that are going to happen in the future at the cu- on the current trajectory yeah. of where we're heading. So massive shout out to Lewis, massive shout out to Just Stop Oil, who he was campaigning for. Um, we'll link them into the show. Football is trivial in comparison to climate breakdown. Okay. And so, you know, like I say, big respect to Lewis. Okay, and a big thank you to everyone that is listening. And remember, if you're helping the planet in any way, we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. We'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon, with a special thanks to Barbara Burke, Guillermo Mund, and Angela Brown. If you're enjoying the show and want to help it grow, but not in an infinite ecological disaster kind of way, head to patreon.com forward slash GND Media UK. 